don't know about you, but I sometimes have days where I think to myself, no matter, no matter what I do, no matter what I do, it won't be good enough. Anybody ever have that? Wow, I'm not alone. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have days where I think that that whatever it is that I have to offer, whatever small contribution I might make, it won't be nearly sufficient to stem the tide of whatever it is. I don't know about you, but maybe some of you have had that also. The sense of futility, the sense that maybe the job is too overwhelming what could I possibly contribute? What could I possibly do? What could I possibly add? It's hard when watching the recent public hearing going on in Washington, D.C. It's hard not to feel that, that some things in this country are too big. It's hard not to feel overwhelmed when one looks at what's going on in any given area of radical social change that we all want to see, or not we all, but maybe many of us want to see. It's kind of natural to feel overwhelmed by that, the enormity of it, the immensity of it. The Sisyphusian feeling of, of impotence and inevitability and here we go. And it's hard not to feel despair right? It's hard. It's a profoundly natural, I think, experience. One looks at a situation that feels impossible, unbudging, and shum sikoi, there's no way to throw up one's hands and say, chalas, no way. And if that's true for us in our lives, if it's true for us in our day-to-day -day living, if it's true for us in our family life sometimes or our relational life sometimes or very often in our social life, imagine what it's like theologically speaking. Meaning, what are we when it comes to the divine scheme of things? Divine perfection. In which way, shape, or form does our service, does our worship, does our moving the needle matter in infinity's calculation? A grain of sand. Against the infinity of universes, the infinity of possible universes. I don't know about you, but that's slightly different, but it kind of feels similar to some despair that we might feel on a more mundane, prosaic level, kind of just to the X factor. Like, God, what was my time here on Earth for? I know, light thoughts like that one that might hit you, I don't know, say, make it a peanut butter sandwich for your eight-year-olds. But I digress. It's hard not to feel when we look at the specter of the temporal of time itself and our capacity agentically, like our agency to do something, that we come up against a wall of despair 
when we think about the enormity of what has to be done and our minuscule capacity to contribute. This phenomena appears, believe it or not, in tomorrow morning's Torah reading, Parshat Bahalotcha, the book of Numbers, will bring us to the point where God will tell Moses to tell his brother Aaron, when you will light the candelabra, the menorah in the temple, make sure that you tell Aaron that's his job. He's got to light the candle. He's got to light the menorah. And it's on this mitzvah, on this commandment to light the menorah of the ancient priests, that the rabbis have a moment of theological vertigo, like some moment. It's not earlier in the Torah when the actual commandment is given to have a menorah, but here, when Aaron the priest will light the menorah, the rabbis say, to what can this be prepared, compared? This is the Midrash in Bereshit, in Bamidbar Rabbah, in the great corpus of Midrashic material. To what can, be, to what can this be compared? What is this like, say the rabbis? Like a king who had a friend, the king said to him, know that I will dine with you at your house, so go and prepare for me, the king says. The president's coming over. The friend goes and prepares a layperson's couch, a layperson's lamp, and a layperson's table. And when the king arrived, an entourage surrounded him on either side with a golden candelabra was in front of him. And once the friend saw all of the glory of the king, he became embarrassed and hid all that he had prepared since it was all mundane. The king said to him, did I not tell you that I would dine with you? Why did you prepare nothing for me? The friend responded, I saw all of this glory that came with you, and I was embarrassed and hid it all. The king responded to him, I swear that I will ruin all of my implements that I brought, and because of your love, I will only use yours. So let's get the parable so we understand. The rabbis say that to what can we compare Aaron being told to light the candelabra in the holy temple to a king who says to an average Joe, an average David, I want to eat by you tonight. I go home, I get the couch ready, I set up my nice plastic or Ikea plates, they're all nice. And the king shows up and I see the king coming. Whoa, an entourage. Oh, the king. I look at my paltry, pathetic, ordered in Chinese food that I ordered in for the king. And I whisk it away. And the king walks in and sees nothing prepared and says, no, didn't I say I was coming? And I have to confess, I say to the king, I saw who you were and I was embarrassed. And the king says, Abba Zoe, if that's the case, you were embarrassed. I'll ruin everything I have, everything. Because of your love for me, I want only what you prepared. Very strange midrash. Rabbi Aviva Richman, amazing teacher at Hadar, brings this midrash and asks fundamentally, is the midrash trying to, like, what's the meaning of the midrash? Is it a good thing to be embarrassed because of your embarrassment? Because you felt that what you gave was inadequate? Because you felt that you didn't have enough, I only want what you have. What's the nature of this embarrassment? So she brings the Svadamet, the great Gerebi, who writes that this is a tragedy. 
that this friend is the anti-role model. So the sadness of this story is that the person was so embarrassed by what he was bringing, so embarrassed by what he could offer the king that he, he threw it away. And the Svas Emes, the Gerebi, in the letter, part of the 19th century, reads, this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy that this person thought that what they had to offer was, was inconsequential. And nonetheless, God says, I'm sorry, the king says, I still want what you have, but next time, there's another way to read it. And the Svas Emes, the same Hasidic author, Yehuda Leib, Alter of Ger, offers years later a completely different about face. He writes, not that it was wrong, but a surefire sign, a sure indicator of the love of the friend was this willingness to be embarrassed. A recognition of how timid and timorous what could be offered is. Which one is it? Don't feel timid. Feel that whatever you have to offer is good enough and don't throw it away. Or which one? Or say no. And Rabbi Richman writes, both of them are true. And what does this have to do with theology and meaning? Clearly, the parable is speaking to our inadequacy in the face of something so much bigger and so much grander than we could possibly imagine. The sense of futility. What could I possibly offer the one who has everything? <laughs> Little Mermaid in the middle of my sermon? I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. Like the one who has everything. You come before God and you say, what can I possibly give you? What do you need, infinity? What does infinity need from me? Are you load in enosh? Like just, a, I'm just a person. What can I possibly give you? And the despair that comes, a willingness to destroy everything in the face of that perfection, of that ideal, of that lofty goal, of that monumental enterprise. To throw up our hands and say, you know what? There's no way. And so V. Richmond and others say that essentially here, there is a natural embarrassment when faced with the infinite, with the impossible, with the insurmountable. And despair is natural. But don't give in. Because God says, I want what you have to bring. I want what you have to bring. And maybe more importantly, that the very little bit that you bring matters. The very little bit that you do pushes infinity ever so much closer. So don't give up. It's hard when we sit here on, during the month of, of pride and on the weekend where we're going to celebrate Juneteenth on Monday, it's easy, I wouldn't say easy, but understandable maybe, for us to look at the course of history, look at the course of moments of great despair, to look at where things are and not only notice, right, where we have come from, but how much further we have to go. 
it's so important for us to recognize that there is so much more to do, especially now to protect LGBTQ plus folk in our communities and in this country, especially at this moment. It's so vital for us to recognize how much further we have to do with the racial reckoning that exists in this country. We only have to look at what's happening this week at the insurrection hearings. But it's also overwhelming and daunting at times, isn't it? It's overwhelming and daunting to think about how much is yet to be accomplished. How much can I do? How much can I do with, when it comes to gun violence? How much can I do? How much can I do if I'm being invited to go protest and to go march? How much can I do? What's the value of me lighting these paltry candles to you, God? You have light everywhere, don't you? What's my light going to add to your light? What would my meal mean to you? You have a pick of everything. Does what I ultimately do move the needle? And the Torah and the tradition says absolutely does. Every single action, every single moment, every single smile, every single vote, every single hug, every single call, every single one of them matters. How do we know? It mattered to the person that you called. It mattered to this one and that one. It mattered. I was thinking about this so much as I walk around and, and feel the vestiges of the old, the normal, and how quickly the, the doors of perception are sliding back and forth. We're not in the pandemic in quite the way we were, but we're not out of it yet. Just walking on the street here and I see a friend of mine and we just say, hey, I haven't seen each other in two years. And we just start talking. And before we even, like, we've already in what we're fetching about and complaining about. And then I look at her and we look at me and say, this is normal. Where's the despair? It's a small moment, but it matters. The despair is overwhelming at times, but small moments of normal, small moments of connection, small moments make the difference. Rich Orloff is a member of our community, wrote a poem on the Saturday morning in 2021, when our community, after a year of closed doors, opened our doors for the first time after one year and wrote this poem that morning. He wrote on Saturday morning, April 17th, 2021, a member of a synagogue in New York opened the ark containing the Torah and a rabbinic intern took it out and held it in her arms. Jews have been opening the ark and taking out the Torah for thousands upon thousands of Saturday mornings. But this was the first time it happened at this synagogue since the pandemic began over a year earlier. The cantor looked at the rabbinic intern and said, You've been with us 10 months now, and I just realized this is the first time we've met in person. And the intern began to weep. Since both of her hands were holding the Torah, the rabbi took out a handkerchief and wiped her tears, which made the intern cry even more. <laughs> so the rabbi wiped her tears again. 
Most of the synagogue watched on Zoom, a few of us sitting six feet apart from each other in a space chilled from lack of human warmth, were not just witnesses, but the first of many returning from exile, which is what Jews have done whenever they can, in one way or another together in search of sanctuary. In one way or another in search of sanctuary, the Torah comes this Shabbat to tell us that those moments of reaching out to dispel the darkness, those moments of appreciation of what things were like a year ago, six months ago, three months ago, those moments of gratitude and appreciation, those moments matter. Every moment of aliyah, of going up, of elevating matters. It was a few short years ago, I'm sure, that um, our friend Gary, who's here with us tonight, probably thought that his dream of living in Israel was a pipe dream, something that could never, ever happen. Would Israel need you, Gary, to live there? After all, millions of Jews already live there. What could you possibly contribute to that society you might have imagined, or you have too many things here in New York and in America that make it impossible, but you dreamed a dream, and with every day, you deposited hope that your dream might become a reality. This coming week actually will be when you will actually make Aliyah, when you will be elevated, as it were, by joining children and grandchildren and Deb's children and grandchildren in Tel Aviv in Eretz Israel. And so we bless you tonight, and we'll bless you again tomorrow, but I wanted to say to you tonight that in me, you have brought um, a reminder not to give up on a dream, not to give up on a hope, even if it seems far away, to continue to plug away one little day at a time until that moment when there'll be a full aliyah, a full elevation for you, for all of us here, wherever you are, May God bless you and bless all of us with a reminder that what you make for dinner, what you prepare, what you got to give is what God needs for her, for the world, and for our collective elevation and liberation. Please rise. <laughs>